This is an announcement of the most vital importance. Sure it is. All television, radio, and telephone communications throughout the world have been interrupted so that this transmission can be made. People of Earth, I am an alien from outer space. What's he selling? Flying saucers? 36 hours ago, five members of the human race were transported from Earth to the space vessel from which I'm speaking. Each of them has since been returned to Earth, bearing with them information of concern to every human being on your planet. These five people are Evelyn Wingate of Cornwall, England, Professor Klaus Bechner of Germany, Su Tan of the province of Kunming, China, Jonathan Clark of Los Angeles, California, and Private Ivan Godovsky, a soldier from behind the Iron Curtain. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We are the men in black. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futus of War. Resistance is futile. Straight flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh, man, this could be catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. It's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is a uh, reach call. You're listening to Trex and Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Trex in Sci-Fi. This is episode 763 for Sunday, May 17th, 2020. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is the 1957 cult classic, The 27th Day. It stars Gene Barry, Valerie French, George Vaskovic, and Arnold Moss. Before I get into today's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to the 27th day. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information. And then I'll get into today's movie. In just a few moments, these five, American newspaper man, English bathing beauty, German scientist, Russian soldier, Chinese peasant girl, will be given the power to destroy every human being on earth. What will they do? What will their governments force them to do? What would you do? Each of the capsules has a diameter of lethal radiation which is exactly 3,000 miles. There is then, in the combined capsules, more than enough power to wipe out all human life on your planet. People of Earth, I am an alien from outer space. say anything. I thought you'd never make it. How long are we going to stay here just hiding like hunted animals? You don't think I like hiding, do you? We've been here ten days. We've managed to disagree on every one of them. Actually, we've had all the disadvantages of marriage without any of the advantages. Jonathan? But it's true. It's time I went to bed. Demand is hereby made for the immediate withdrawal of all American forces and civilians on land, sea, and air to within the limits of continental United States on pain of total war. 
every human being alive will die unless science solves the riddle of the destruction capsules from outer space before the 27th day. Answer me, Klaus. Where are they? I've launched them. Soon the world will be ours. The 27th Day is a 1957 American science fiction movie directed by William Asher and produced by Helen Ainsworth. The screenplay was written by Robert M. Fresco. Uh, The 27th Day was based on the 1957 novel of the same name by John Mantley. It was released July 1st, 1957 and has a running time of 75 minutes. And here's the cast, starting at the top. Gene Barry as Jonathan Clark. Valerie French as Eve Wingate. George Voskovic as Professor Klaus Beckner. Azimet Janti was Ivan Godofsky. Arnold Moss as the alien. Stefan Schnabel as the Soviet general. Paul Fries as Ward Mason. He's the TV newscaster. And Marie Satayan as Sutan. And that's all I have for movie information. So let's get into today's movie. Today's movie opens with Englishwoman Eve Wingate, American reporter Jonathan Clark, Chinese woman Sutan, German physicist Klaus Beckner, and a Soviet soldier named Ivan Godosky are suddenly transported to an alien spaceship in Earth's orbit. Excuse me, aren't you Professor Klaus Beckner? But what are we doing here? Where are we? I don't know. I was writing a column in the office of the Los Angeles Record-Telegram. Somebody spoke to me. Next thing I know, I woke up here. Los Angeles? I was in England. And I, my dear, was in Koblenz. But how? The how, I suspect, we may never understand. What interests me now is why. It's pretty obvious where you're from, my dear. And you, soldier? (laughs) People of Earth, permit me to explain your presence here. Each of you is hearing my words in his or her native tongue. Who are you? Since I'm a stranger to each of you, perhaps it would be simplest to call me the alien. Where are you from? The name of the planet I come from is unknown to you. One of many worlds in a nearby universe. Where are we now? In space. I don't believe it. If you please. Don't be frightened. You'll be sent back to Earth absolutely unharmed. Furthermore, no measurable time by earthly standards will pass while you're here. Is such a thing possible? You're traveling at almost exactly the speed of light. At such a speed, time as you know it does not exist. Theoretically, but in actuality. Why have we been brought here? If you'll kindly be seated, I'll try to explain. You five are here, in effect, as representatives. Not of your particular countries, but as representatives of the human race. Then you have come to Earth to establish contact. Oh, no, Professor. We are here to help you save your beautiful planet. You talk as if the Earth were about to be destroyed. That danger exists. Your entire history is one of self-destruction. You have now what you believe to be the ultimate weapon. The H-bomb. If you destroy yourselves, you also destroy the Earth. And that we cannot permit. For it is needed. Needed? 
The universe in which my world exists is dying. Soon our sun will be going into Nova and explode. Therefore, your people need a new world. Within 35 days. Then you're going to invade us. Oh, no. No, our moral code does not permit us to invade nor to destroy any form of intelligent life. We are prepared to lend you a weapon. A weapon which will permit you to destroy yourselves without harming your planet. This weapon affects only human life. Nothing else will be harmed. It will be long to you for 27 of the 35 days remaining to us. If at the end of that time, midnight of the 27th day, Greenwich time, you've not used it, the weapon will automatically become harmless. You are under no compulsion to make use of the weapon. Yet you think we will. We cannot hope for disaster. We merely expect it. Say you're wrong. Say the 27 days go by and we don't use the weapons. What happens then? Your race will live. Mine will die. Who are you going to give the weapons to? The weapons, one apiece, will be given to each of you. You may, of course, turn them over to your governments. But the decision is yours. The weapons are yours to do with as you wish. I can understand your curiosity, but they're protected by a force field. Each of the boxes is tuned to the electrical impulse of its owner. Now, Professor, the one to your left is yours. Ivan Godovsky, the next is yours. Eve Wingett, the next is yours. Sutan, you too. The last is yours, Jonathan Clark. Each of you holds in your hands the power of life and death. Each box contains three capsules. They are the weapon. They surpass by many times the power of anything your race has yet created. Each of the capsules has a diameter of lethal radiation which is exactly 3,000 miles. There is then, in the combined capsules, more than enough power to wipe out all human life on your planet. To use the capsules, you remove the spindle, place the capsule down, speak loudly and clearly, the latitude and longitude in the center of the target area. The energy thus launched takes only human life, damages nothing else. It cannot be opened by ordinary means, Professor. Only your own thought waves will actuate the release mechanism. No other force on your Earth is capable of opening the box. But once it has been opened, anyone can pull the spindle, and any voice can launch them to their targets. What if we die? If any one of you is called by death, the capsules will become ineffective immediately. One more question, please. Do we have your solemn word that if we succeed in keeping the peace for 27 days, Earth will be free of invasion. You have my word, Professor. 27 days. <laughs> you ask us to learn in 27 days what has escaped the world for thousands of years. You ask us to practice peace or die. The choice is not new, Professor. Only the weapons. Now, if you'll forgive me, time is short. Will you be kind enough to return to your seats? and you'll be sent back to Earth. The five people return to Earth. Eve immediately throws her capsules into the English Channel and then books a flight to Los Angeles. Sutan chooses to commit suicide, causing her capsules to self-destruct. The others go about their daily tasks undisturbed until the next day, when the alien commandeers all electronic communications and reveals to the world the existence and the power of the capsules. Good evening, this is Ward Mason. Word just in confirms that the strange broadcast that has startled the world, 
has been heard throughout the Iron Curtain and the satellite countries. As to the question, was it real? The answer must now be held to be yes. Insofar as can now be determined, the alien, whoever or whatever he is, effectively managed to blanket every facet of the Earth's communication facilities for the 10 minutes in which he had his say. This has been confirmed by the FCC. The FCC's officials privately admit they are now convinced that the alien spoke from a point somewhere beyond and outside of the Earth's atmosphere. One thing is uppermost in the minds of the millions of people who saw and heard the alien. Where are the five people whose names he kept repeating? Who do they know? What do they know? Meanwhile, here in this country, the search for Jonathan Clark has been intensified. Clark, a newspaper man, disappeared from a downtown Los Angeles restaurant during the alien's broadcast and is assumed to be in hiding. Overhearing the broadcast while on a trip to the United States, Professor Breckner is hit by a car while crossing the street and is taken to the hospital. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, Private Godowski is detained by his superiors. Send him in. Come forward, Private Godowski. You have been honored, Private Godowski, the first member of our country to visit space. I understand you were a little confused when Colonel Gregor found you. He had the peculiar impression that you were running away. The broadcast said that you were taken aboard the spaceship 36 hours ago. Yes, sir. How is it that you did not come to us at once? I was afraid no one would believe me, sir. I understand that these people from space gave you some very important information. Yes, sir. I'm waiting. They just gave me that box. It's very interesting. What are the capsules for? Uh, I don't know, sir. You don't know? Not exactly, sir. We were given these boxes. All of you? The alien gave you this without telling you what it was for? He said just they contained a secret of great power. Did he tell you how to use this great power? No, sir. I see. I suppose you were not told how to uh, open the box. No, sir. Were you told anything? Just that if I were to die, whatever was in the box would be of no value. That's fascinating. Your story must be recorded for everybody to know, Private. You will be happy to repeat it at greater length, will you not? Yes, sir. You're dismissed. You heard? Yes, sir. You know what to do. Yes, sir. Arriving in Los Angeles, Eve is, is met by now-disguised Jonathan, who takes her to a closed racetrack where they can hide undetected. Miss Wingard was seen hurling a small object into the sea. Her gentleman friend, Harry Bellows, who witnessed the incident, reported that the girl appeared highly distraught. The populations of Rockhurst Cove and other coastal communities are being evacuated on the assumption that the object might very well have been a mine. Les plus larges spéculations ont été faites des deux côtés de la Manche. Le Quai d'Orsay a annoncé qu'il n'y avait aucune raison d'inquiétude dans la région normande et bretonne. Late reports from England confirm that there has been sporadic rioting. British government sources indicate they believe the Wingate girl might have been acting under the alien's orders. Miss Wingate is believed to be hiding with Jonathan Clark, who has been missing several days. The British have assumed that the object in question was a weapon 
and the London press is actively speculating that all five of the aliens' visitors may be acting under orders to place the alleged weapons in strategic positions. All we have to do is get rid of our capsules, huh? But such panic. What do you expect? Reason? Discipline? Restraint? Those people out there, I feel sorry for them. Well, I do. They're bound with fear. They're frightened, every one of them. Ever since the alien came into their lives, they've been waiting, waiting for they don't know what. Those characters you're feeling sorry for are so full of hate, they'd lynch us if they could get their hands on us. I know. I've forgotten how easily hate comes alive. People hate because they fear, and they fear anything they don't understand, which is almost everything. You're not terribly fond of people, are you? Right now, I can take them or leave them. John. I'm still listening. I wish there was some way we could find out what's happening to the others. Are you starting that again? Just wish we knew. Oh, we don't. We can't. Let's hope we won't. Private Godowski is interviewed by a Soviet general who's dissatisfied with his vague story and orders him to be subjected to intense interrogation. We who are supposed to have the finest scientific minds in the world cannot open one small box. Sir, it resists every test known to modern science. You have heard the news from our English friends. They believe it is a weapon. There's no indication that the capsule... I are... am indicating the danger of other nations discovering the answer before we do. I trust this danger is obvious. We shall continue our efforts. Thank you, gentlemen. Well? Nothing, sir. You think he's lying? No. He's not clever enough to have thought up a story as incredible as the one he tells. And there is something he's not telling us. Exactly. But we've been over the story a hundred times. It's taken tremendous courage for him to go on like this. Even torture cannot break him. He must be broken. He insists the contents of the box will be useless if he dies. He's right. Chinese girl. The capsule's disintegrated with her death. You must find a way to make Godofsky talk. Yes, sir. Oh, and Gregor. Yes, sir. How difficult do you think it would be to get to Bechner? I'll find out, sir. Panic over the aliens' crisis grow in the days that follow. The repeated beatings leave Private Godofsky in shock while a recovering Professor Beckner refuses to reveal the details of the alien's plan. Professor, I wonder if you fully understand the concern that has gripped the world. It is because of that concern that I must withhold my information. The White House feels that you should give us some idea of the alien's mission. Don't you see that by remaining silent you create even more apprehension? I see it, Mr. Ingram, but unfortunately there is nothing I can do about it. I have no choice but to trust your judgment, Professor. However, there are a few questions I must ask. I hope you'll at least try to answer them. I will if I can. Does the alien in any way constitute a menace to our society? I have already said that their ethic does not permit them to harm any form of intelligent life. Is this box or its contents dangerous to our security? The box and the contents cannot in themselves be harmful to anyone. You must realize, Professor, that there is at least one, and probably two, of these boxes behind the Iron Curtain. Yes, yes. Dr. Newhouse. We've given the box every test we can think of, without success. It can't even be sketched, let alone opened. We'll keep on trying, but my personal opinion is we get nowhere. What is your opinion, Professor? I am sure that if the world's foremost atomic scientist has been unsuccessful, there is no physical force which will be more effective than those already tried. However... Yes? 
Mr. Ingram, the capsules are a mystery to me, too. But I have a feeling about them, something that the aliens said and that I can't quite isolate. If you'd only permit me to examine them. Under the circumstances, Professor, that's out of the question. I'm sure you understand. Yes. Thank you, Professor. Goodbye, Carl. Professor, I do hope when all this is over, we will have an opportunity to talk. I'd be most grateful for your views on several ideas of mine. And I, Doctor, would like to have your views on almost everything. Thank you. You did say, didn't you, that there was no physical force capable of opening the box? I did, but mind you, Doctor, it's only an old man's opinion. Goodbye, Professor. Time for your medicine, Professor. Mm. Ah, chocolate. My next two clips are of Jonathan and Eve and their conversations about the world, their situation, while they're hiding out at the racetrack. What time is it? Quarter of 11. Planning on going somewhere? No. I just wondered if we couldn't get some news. We haven't heard anything about Professor Beckner for two days. If he'd have told him anything, we'd have heard. How long are we going to stay here, just hiding like hunted animals? Look, I'm no boy scout doing this for kicks. You don't think I like hiding, do you? The funny thing, here I am, a newspaper man, sitting on the best story of my life, and I can't do anything about it. Then why do we stay here? Maybe for the first time in my life, I think enough about the next guy to do the right thing by him. Maybe you're wrong. Why don't you just keep doing what you're doing and don't try to judge me? I'm not interested in your opinion. Well, I have a right to them. But I don't think you do. As far as I'm concerned, you lost your rights when you threw those capsules away. Men commit a variety of crimes, and they always seem to have the same excuse. We've been here ten days, and we've managed to disagree on every one of them. It's normal. Take two strangers, put them in close quarters, have them clean, cook, talk. Actually, we've had all the disadvantages of marriage without any of the advantages. Jonathan, stop. But it's true. It's time I went to bed. Sleep well. Do you think maybe a man could be so pig-headed wrong he can't see the truth even when it's spelled out for him? I wouldn't have much respect for a man who wasn't pig-headed when he was sure he was right. A man like that could be dangerous. Maybe. When the alien first gave us these capsules, I thought the whole thing was preposterous. It seemed pretty obvious that all we had to do was to keep them hidden until the 27 days were up. Well, even the Chinese girl on Ivan would have seen that. It was all too easy. It would have been all right if the alien hadn't made the broadcast. Yeah, but he did. And now we're being hunted like animals. They tried to kill Professor Beckner, and I hate to think what may be happening to Ivan and the Chinese girl. Do you think if Ivan talks, his government would use the weapon? They might. They've been racing to see who could discover the most powerful weapon of war. To add to this, the hydrogen bomb is a toy. Now, both nations have the ultimate weapon. I tried to stay out of it by hiding. Are you thinking of giving yourself up? I don't know what to think anymore. If I come in on my own accord, I might be able to stop some of the panic. I thought you told me that the world was built on self-preservation. The most important thing in life was to look out for number one. A lot of my convictions have begun to wear pretty thin the last few days. For instance, I had a very strong conviction that there wasn't a woman alive who could make me fall in love. What did you say? It's a miserable way to find out, isn't it? 
It's a miserable way to say it. Maybe someday I can say it better. So the Soviets shoot Private Godowski up with some sodium pentothal and make some talk. And they discover the alien's plan and they gain access to his capsules. His mind will clear. For a time. To administer pentothal after only five days. You can question him, sir. But you understand his condition. Ivan, there is no need to be frightened. I know now you wanted only to protect us from the horrors of war. Is that not so? Yet you have failed. The imperialist nations have pooled the aliens' weapons. We find ourselves defenseless unless you can help us, Ivan. You and you alone can save your people from destruction. Your father gave his life in the defense of his country. I have here a letter from your mother. She wants you to ensure that your father's life was not given in vain. Help us, Ivan. If you should have a relapse, we would be at the mercy of our enemies. I'll tell you everything. After two Soviet agents nearly succeed in assassinating Professor Beckner and an innocent man who looks like Jonathan is killed by the mob, Jonathan and Eve reveal themselves and are taken into U.S. government custody. But we can't just sit here and do nothing now that we know that Ivan has put the weapon in the hands of his government. Are you proposing that we use ours? That would be the first step in fulfilling the alien's plan. Alien, all this nonsense about their high morality... Well, it's double talk. They give us a weapon and they expect us to use it. And yet they give the impression that they hope we won't. Morality. Why, if they're so full of morals and loving kindness, how come they just happen to have 15 nice, shiny human exterminators lying around? I don't think you are being fair to the alien. Fair? They could have simply used their capsules and taken our planet. Jonathan. Imagine what we must look like in their eyes. Since the first men hit one another with clubs, the human race has spent more time destroying itself than in any other endeavor. But the aliens have not tried to judge us. They have merely intensified our choice, a choice that has faced us since the first atomic bomb. Now, with them, it's not so much a choice as it is an ultimatum. I think we are all missing a significant point. What's that, Professor? If we were a stable, mature people, this would be almost nothing. The alien would have presented us with the capsules, and we, upon returning to Earth, would have promptly tossed them into the nearest sewer. Or the nearest ocean. Instead, we returned to Earth terrified. Why? Because we knew that the human race could not be trusted to handle these bombs any more than an undisciplined child could be trusted with a high-powered rifle. That still doesn't help us to know what to do. If only they'd let me work on the capsules. Well, they are even afraid of me. You have an idea? I do not pretend to know how the capsules operate. But if only I could get my hands on one of them, perhaps... Perhaps what? It's just a feeling that I know something, or I ought to know it. Professor Beckner opens his capsule and explains to U.S. officials how the capsule is linked to his brain. Our government is seriously concerned that other powers have succeeded where we have failed. We were hoping, now that there seems to be no further need for concealment, that one of you might enlighten us. Amazing. You said it couldn't open. No physical force on Earth could have opened this particular box. Only my mental projection. By the same token, no one but Ivan Godovsky could have opened his box. They are keyed to the electrical impulses of their possessors. Well, then their story is true. It is true. Agreed. 
But what about their claim that their capsules have destructive powers within a radius of 1,500 miles? Three capsules, then, will be able to destroy every vestige of human life on the North American continent, from Panama to Hudson Bay. Can anyone believe that? Believe that such energy is contained in a cylinder smaller than the cup of my fountain pen? A cylinder that will understand instructions like a robot? I cannot. Then why should the alien give them to us in the first place? What better way to start a war here on Earth than to place these boxes in our hands? And let us believe they will do everything the alien says they will. If you are right, Dr. Newhouse, it's almost too clever. The only way we can check the truth of the alien's words is to test one of the bombs. And, of course, that's out of the question. I'm not so sure. There is an area of more than 3,000 miles diameter off the east coast of South America. The test could be conducted at sea. You forget, Admiral, this test requires a human life. We cannot put a human being within the area when we have every reason to believe that his life might be the price of our mistake. Gentlemen, much of our concern may be unnecessary. Remember, there are still 12 days. If I could have the capsules long enough to examine them, study them thoroughly, perhaps there is another way. That decision I cannot make. However, I suggest we adjourn for the present. You will be notified of a future meeting. The Soviet leader gives the U.S. an ultimatum to remove all U.S. forces throughout the world and combine themselves to the North American continent. Gentlemen, I am prepared to destroy all life on the North American continent if the Americans do not withdraw from Europe and Asia and confine themselves to continental United States. Sir... This will mean a war that could finish us as well as them. There will be no war, Marshal. If I launch these three capsules, they will not have one single person left alive to give orders and none to carry them out. Where is your war then, Marshal? But if they strike first... The lessons of history have been wasted on you, Marshal. Democracies are appeasers. And the Americans in particular cannot be provoked into a war. They must be bombed into it. They will do something, sir. Of course, they will threaten and bluster and make angry speeches. And they will end doing just as we ask. I shall read to you the ultimatum, which has already been delivered to the United States. Demand is hereby made for the immediate withdrawal of all American forces and civilians on land, sea, and air to within the limits of continental United States. On pain of total war. Such withdrawal is to begin within 48 hours of the moment this document is placed in the hands of the government of the United States. This is not their people speaking. It is one man. Well, we can't accept it. If we pull everything back home, we've piled our potential where he can destroy us with a single blow. If we can start the evacuation within the time limit, seeming to be complying with their demands, they might not use the weapons until it's too late. But what about my suggestion? If the boxes do not actually contain weapons, you're giving up the world for nothing. If you would only permit me to examine the capsules, I have an idea that... I'm sorry, Professor. Approval has been given to your suggestion, Admiral, and the test site. Most of the equipment is readily available. If we flew out of here tonight, we could start the test by the day after tomorrow. We still have the problem of a test subject. So as not to alarm the public, the test must be conducted in absolute secrecy. For this reason, and even more compelling moral ones, we cannot use condemned criminals or even ask for volunteers. I must admit to being... Gentlemen, I am your test subject. As soon as I heard of the ultimatum, I subjected myself to a fatal overdose of gamma radiation. You can check my statement with a radiation counter if you wish. But Dr. Newhouse... I realized that you would not accept me if I volunteered, so decided to place you in a position where you could not refuse. You see, although I'm born in Germany, I reside in Missouri. I have to be shown. Carl, the forfeiture of a life such as yours... I'm not at all sure the test will be successful, but if it is, and what is one life against millions? 
So the U- U.S. government decides to test one of Beckner's capsules to verify the, verify the Soviet threat. Uh, Dr. Newhouse volunteers and is left on a raft way out in the ocean. And after opening the capsule, Professor Ve- Beckner reads the exact coordinates out loud. And Dr. Newhouse is instantaneously vaporized. Ship's on station, Admiral. Thank you, Captain. Now, this is the limit of the radiation radius. Dr. Newhouse is here, just within the limit. Our position is here, one mile outside the radius. Sir, he's coming through. Professor, it's time. It won't open. I know what it is, Jonathan. I do not really want the box to open. Radiation poisoning is a pretty terrible way to die. I can't. I I can't do it. Latitude 71 degrees, 25 minutes, 13 seconds south. Longitude 150 degrees, 14 minutes, 18 seconds east. After the test, the U.S. Brink begins to withdraw its troops worldwide. Aboard the U.S. uh, Navy destroyer at sea, Professor Beckner... Jonathan and Eve discussed their concerns that the Soviets will use their capsules at the last minute, avoiding uh, retaliation. At midnight tonight, the 27 days will be over. They've all missed one. Nothing. Or we are on the verge of annihilation. If you were to launch the bombs against someone, when would you do it? At the last possible moment, so that your enemies have no chance of striking back. Exactly. It is my firm conviction that unless something happens to prevent it, the weapons behind the Iron Curtain will be launched. It is a question of life or death. No. Not life or death. Life and death. What do you mean? I think I have the answer. Jonathan, I must have your capsules. What for? I need a complete set. There is some message on them. It's in a mathematical code. Jonathan, you simply must let me have yours. Klaus, I don't think I can do that. But you must. Don't you understand? The alien has put some kind of message on them. I think I know what it may be, but I cannot be sure without the third. Please have the box brought here and then decide. Admiral, will you please have the capsule sent here? Captain? You see? The etchings. I transferred them to clay. I made reliefs from the two that were left. But the message is incomplete. And these hieroglyphics really mean something to you? They are mathematical symbols, some of which I have never encountered before. But in mathematics, there is always a solution. Eventually, I am sure I will be able to decipher them. Jonathan, there are only five hours left.
Now I must be left alone. Please. Clark, I hope you know what you're doing. Yeah, I hope so too. Determined to find another way, Professor Beckner studies the remaining capsules and discovers an imprinted mathematical code on them. As the Soviet general prepares to use the capsules from the balcony, Private Godofsky rushes him and the capsules fall to the ground two stories below. These are our targets. Two minutes. Everything is prepared. Our troops will move the moment the third capsule is released. Soon the world will be ours. Twenty-nine degrees, forty-five minutes, twenty-six seconds north. Longitude, ninety-five degrees, twenty-one minutes. You fools! Don't shoot! If he dies, the capsules are useless. Look after him! At the very same time, Professor Beckner simultaneously launches his remaining capsules and the ones from Jonathan's container. He has deciphered the hidden code and discovered that the capsules can be programmed. The world is then blanketed with a high-pitched sonic wave that kills every known enemy of human freedom. Where are the capsules? Answer me, Klaus. Where are they? I've launched them. I've blanketed the world. Then the capsules didn't work. Of course. If they had, we'd all be dead by now. I think they worked. I think they worked very well. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. The bulletin we've been waiting for. Scientists believe we have been bombarded by invisible rays from outer space. Reports pouring in from all over the globe confirm sudden and unexplainable deaths. All the cases have shown the same symptoms. All heard a high-pitched, almost supersonic noise, accompanied by acute agony and severe shock, and followed by death. I know it's unbelievable, fantastic, but the rays appear to have killed every person throughout the world, known to have been a confirmed enemy of human freedom. Yes, the entire world is now united in a spiritual unity unparalleled in its history. There are those who might say it can't last, but let us pray it does. Thank God. Unlike you, Jonathan, I never believed that the alien was acting in bad faith. But what gave you the idea the capsules could be altered? Yesterday morning, in my excitement, I used the phrase life or death, remember? We both thought you'd gone a little crazy. Aboard the spaceship, the alien said, you hold in your hands the power of life and death. He might have meant that the capsules could bring us life as well as death. And on evidence like that, you launched the capsules? Yes. You see, almost every form of energy, fire, electricity, nuclear fission, has two diametrically opposed uses. As an asset for peace or a weapon of war, for good or for evil. The capsules followed the pattern. They had to. The alien was incapable of giving us a weapon only for destruction. I suppose we should be happy, but I can't help thinking what victory for us means in terms of the alien. Yes, I cannot imagine a greater tragedy. Not only for them, but for us. Why for us? We made contact with the stars. How many years may pass by before this can happen again? Think of all the knowledge they could give us if we could help them. 
But must we lose it? We have vast uninhabited areas, jungles, deserts, polar caps. We can't use them, but maybe they can. But there's no time. There are still eight days. Klaus, as long as this feeling lasts on Earth, there are no boundaries between nations. No fear, no suspicion. Perhaps, yes, perhaps it could be done. Admiral, excuse me. The last scene of today's movie takes place at the United Nations. Professor Beckner extends an invitation to the alien and his people to coexist peacefully on Earth. The alien accepts, and a new day like no other dawns for humanity. And that's the end of today's movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. The flying saucer scenes in today's movie were taken from the movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. The beach scene, where Eve Wingate is out with her boyfriend at the beginning of the movie, and later where she comes back and throws her, ca her alien capsules into the water, is the same location they use for the famous love scene between Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr in From Here to Eternity. The unusual-looking sports car that Eve's boyfriend is seen standing near in the opening scenes on the beach is a 1954 Arnold Brister competition. There are only 200 of those cars made. The director, William Asher, was also the creator of the TV show Bewitched, and he was also married to the star of Bewitched, Elizabeth Montgomery. Screenwriter John Mantley would go on to be a producer on the TV shows Gunsmoke, Buck Rogers in the 20th Century, and MacGyver. And that's all I have for movie trivia. Now it's time for the Star Trek connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I try to find a Star Trek connection in every TV show or movie I watch. Today's movie has, believe it or not, two Star Trek connections. The first Star Trek connection is Arnold Moss. He played the alien in today's movie. He would go on to play the mysterious Shakespearean actor Anton Caridian, the alter ego of the tyrannical Governor Kodos of Taurus IV in the first season episode of the original series, Conscious of the King. The second Star Trek connection is Theodore Marcus. He had an uncredited role as the Russian officer in today's movie. He's the one that beat up Private Godowski. He would go on to play Korab in the second season episode of the original series, Catspaw. Remember the two little aliens? Korab and Sylvia? He's Korab. That's all I have for the Star Trek connection. Here are my comments about today's movie. I watched the 2015 DVD release from Mill Creek Entertainment. It was part of a vintage sci-fi movie collection I bought for like five bucks off of Amazon. It also comes with The Night the World Exploded, The H-Man, 12 to the Moon, Battle in Outer Space, and Valley of the Dragons. The picture and sound quality on this DVD was okay. This is a bare bones DVD though. There's no bonus features, no behind the scenes, no trailer, no nothing. The 27th Day is not your average 1950s science fiction movie. Because we all know that movies, science fiction movies made in the 1950s were considered to be for kids. They're kids movies. So the tr studios always try to appeal to children by having monsters, giant ants, uh, robots, you know, that kind of stuff. This movie has none of that. This is a thinking man science fiction movie. There's a lot of dialogue and no action. So this movie didn't do well in movie theaters. And it was a double bill with 20 million miles to Earth, which I'm pretty sure that the kids love the giant monster and the Harry Rayhausen effects of that movie. And then when this was the double feature, the kids probably hit the bricks and said, enough of this movie. Okay. Today's movie was based on a novel by John Mantley. The story's not too bad. It's, it kind of reminds me of another story about a benevolent alien coming to Earth and wanting us to get our stuff together. You know, the day the Earth stood still. Basically the same story. Get your stuff together or you'll be destroyed. There it is in a nutshell. And except for in this movie, the aliens go, so if you want to destroy yourself, we'll give you the stuff to do it. Here you go. 
Like I said earlier, this movie has lots and lots and lots of dialogue. But thank goodness it's only 75 minutes long. Because if this was two hours long, you'd be bored to tears. Uh, I think the cast did an okay job. I mean, like Gene Barry, he pretty much was the same character he was in War of the Worlds. Uh, this is the first time I saw Valerie French and everything, and she was okay at best. Uh, the character I liked the most was Professor Beckner. He was played by George Vaskovic, and he was pretty good in the movie. And the whole time I'm watching the movie, I'm trying to figure out where he, where have I seen him from before? And it came to me, he was one of the jurors in the original 12 Angry Men with Henry Fonda, uh, Lee J. Cobb. Um, it's a great movie. You haven't seen it. Go see that. Put this movie down. Go see that movie. Okay. So I really liked Professor Beckner's character. He had a very logical mind and he was always thinking the whole time. And when I was watching the movie, looking at him, I was thinking he would have made a really good Vulcan. Um, there are some familiar faces in this movie. Um, as you know, Gene Barry, he was in War of the Worlds and another science fiction movie called Atomic City. And then there's Paul Birch. He was the admiral in the movie. And he's in several 1950s science fiction movies. He's in a movie um, called Queen of Outer Space, Not of This Earth, uh, The Day the World Ended, The Beast with uh, a Million Eyes. He was even in War of the Worlds. He had an uncredited role there. He was one of the original three guys who were first vaporized by the Martian, Martian war machines at the beginning of the movie. Uh, this movie was made on the cheap. It was shot in and around Los Angeles in less than a month. And of course, I mentioned earlier that the flying saucer scenes were from Earth versus uh, the flying saucers. And I think the racetrack where they stayed at the racetrack and they stayed in the stables, I think those were the stables that they used to house um, the Japanese Americans when they took them into the, before they went to the internment camps, they used those racetracks to house people before they went to the camps in Idaho and stuff like that. I'm almost positive. Um, let's see, where was I at? Um, this It's an okay movie. I mean, I've watched it a couple times to get ready for this podcast, and it's really not that bad. And I've been wanting to watch it for, for years and years because it's one of those obscure science fiction movies that they don't really watch because it doesn't fit the pattern of aliens, um, Martians, giant ants, that kind of stuff. So it's a kind of a rare movie. You can watch it for free on YouTube or you can buy it from Amazon. Um, I would recommend this movie, the 27th day to classic 19 science fiction fans. If you're really not into that genre, this movie ain't for you. On a scale from one to 10, I'll give the 26th day a solid six out of 10. And those are my comments about the 27th day. That's it for today's podcast. Before I wrap up today's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back on the podcast next week. I'll end today's podcast with a special treat from Vartok. He has put together another Treks and Sci-Fi musical moment featuring old yellow eyes himself, Brent Spiner. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care and stay healthy. This is M5, signing off. everyone, this is Vartok again with another Treks in Sci-Fi Music Moment. One soundtrack and a few words. For today's moment, I'm going to talk about Brent Spiner's CD titled, Old Yellow Eyes is Back, released 29 years ago in 1991. I am pretty sure everyone listening to Rico's podcast today could tell me that Brent Spiner is well known for playing Lieutenant Commander Data on the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. 
For more than a few years, I've been trying to get my hands on a reasonably priced copy of this CD, and the estate sale of a music collector brought this copy onto the market. It was time. Fred Spiner, who is 71 years old, is more than just Lieutenant Commander Data. His career currently spans 50-plus years as an actor, comedian, musician, and a singer. He attended the University of Houston, where he performed in local theater. In the early 1970s, he moved to New York City, where he became a stage actor, performing in several Broadway and off-Broadway plays. Since then, he has been a constant presence in film, television, and voiceovers, with 99 listings on the IMDb. Really, you could do an entire podcast on his career. However, it was in 1987 that Spiner started his 15-year run portraying Lieutenant Commander Data on Star Trek The Next Generation, which spans seven seasons and four feature films. As a main character, he appeared in all but one of the series' 178 episodes. He reprised his role in the spin-off film Star Trek Generation in 1994, Star Trek First Contact in 1996, Star Trek Insurrection in 1998, and Star Trek Nemesis in 2002. Although billed as the final Trek movie for the TNG cast, the ambiguous ending of Star Trek Nemesis suggested a possible avenue for the return of Data. However, Spiner was of the opinion that he was too old to continue playing the part, as Data does not age, whereas he, Spiner, had already aged considerably during the years that he played the role. But as most of us know, he wasn't done. He just recently reprised the Data role, 18 years later, appearing as Data in the 2020 Star Trek series, Star Trek Picard. Old Yellow Eyes is Back, the title of the CD, is a play on the 1973 Frank Sinatra album, Old Blue Eyes is Back, with the difference being that Data has, of course, yellow eyes. In the liner notes, Brent Spiner notes that Sinatra's You Make Me Feel So Young was Sinatra at his awesome best. This song and dozens of others accompanied every dinner I ate between the ages of 5 and 13. My stepfather, an amateur saxophone player and a hell of a mambo dancer, had put together one of the all-time great collections of popular music recordings anywhere. So to my good fortune, we dined every night with the likes of Old Blue Eyes, Judy Garland, Nat King Cole, Rosemary Clooney, Louis Prima, and Keeley Smith, and every other singer that performed on Capitol, Decca, or RCA Records. Old Yellow Eyes' back contains 12 tracks, where he sings a number of old pop standards, mostly from the 1930s and 1940s. Brent notes that by the age of six, pop music had already become an irrevocable part of his consciousness. Brent had help from a number of his Star Trek TNG colleagues, Wendy Noose, associate producer for this series, and Dennis McCarthy, who had scored the music for many of the episodes, co-produced the album with Spiner. Several fellow cast members even joined him to sing It's a Sin to Tell a Lie, appearing under the group name of The Sunspots, a wordplay on The Ink Spots, the first group to perform this song. And who were those friends from TNG who joined in the singing at The Sunspots? None other than LeVar Burton, Michael Dorn, Jonathan Frakes, and Patrick Stewart. And the Sunspots included three additional backup vocal singers. The CD liner notes included with the CD shows several photos of the Sunspots in the recording studio. Classic. Be sure it's true when you say I love you It's a sin To tell A lie Millions of hearts Have been broken Just because these words Were spoken Yes, I do. I love you. If you break my heart, I'll die. So be sure that it's true when you 
Sure, it's true. When you say, I love you, darling. Because, because you know it's a terrible sin to tell a lie. So many, oh, so many hearts have been broken. And all because, because these words was spoken I love you yes I do I love you if you break my heart I'll die so be sure that it's true when you say It's a sin to tell a lie. In March 2008, Brent Spiner performed alongside American cabaret singer Maude Maggard in the radio show musical Dreamland, which was subsequently released as a CD album with 16 tracks. While Old Yellow Eyes is Back is not available on iTunes, you can purchase the album Dreamland for $9.99. Well, I hope you enjoyed this music and sci-fi music moment. And now back to you, Rico.